Let's just do a quick review. So on December 3rd, the first Sunday of December, we looked at Jesus coming to make his home with us. Uh, such an important part of understanding this whole idea of home. You can get these webs- I mean, these uh, messages, if you miss them here, you can always see them on our website, bordercitychurch.com, by the way. The next week, uh, which was last week, Rodney uh, spoke wonderfully into Jesus bringing his peace to our homes and our lives. It's like he comes and sets up his house, but there's a, there's a, there's a result of him being in that house, and it's called peace. And today what we're going to be looking at is inviting others home. And here is the goal for today. We want to leave this room this morning resolved to live for the, live for what Jesus was born and died for. We want to leave this room this morning resolved, determined to live for what Jesus was born for and what he died for. And so three things related to that that we'll look at in the next few minutes. The first is this, what Jesus did in order to welcome us home. And secondly, what Jesus envisioned for people who would come home. There's a vision for this beyond just going to heaven. And then thirdly and lastly, what it will take for us to welcome people home. And without any need for a reminder or accountability, I'm going to pray. I, I need accountability, don't get me wrong, but I don't need a reminder on this one. So, so uh, let's, pr- please, uh, let's agree together and, and just invite the Lord to use this time. He, want, he, he manifests in a special way in the preaching of his word. And uh, so, Father, I'm, I'm praying, God, that as we look at your word, that Jesus would be revealed I pray over the eyes of every heart in this room that we would see and experience and encounter Jesus, the love of Jesus, the passion that led Jesus to a cross, the vision that you have for humanity, the, the, the urgency that you have for this hour. And Father, I, I want to pray that we would leave this place with a resolve to live for what Jesus was sent to be born and to die for. I pray, Father, that we would see somehow by a spirit of revelation uh, your plans and your purposes, that they would become unveiled to us. I bless your people. Let them be encouraged. Let them be strengthened for what you've called them to do, all of us, in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start with what did Jesus, or what Jesus did in order to welcome us home. So first of all, I want to, we're going to look at quite a few scriptures, as is the habit here, which is a good habit. Uh, but first of all, I want to look at Je- the fact that Jesus was with God in heaven and perfection before he came to the earth. I think we, it would be helpful for us to take stock that G- to the fact that Jesus did not simply begin when he was born of that virgin that Rodney referred to earlier. That Jesus existed from the beginning. And what was his state before he came to the earth? Well, if you'll look with me. John chapter 1, if you can't turn there now, let's just follow along. John chapter 1, John begins the apostle John, who was one of Jesus' closest disciples, begins his gospel with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now, for those of you who know, the Word is referring to Jesus. If you don't believe me, drop down to verse 14. You don't have to do that now, but it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Clearly talking about Jesus. The word was with who? Yeah, that's where Jesus was. He was with God. How many of you think that would be a pretty cool place to be? He was with God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. This was Jesus' original status, where he was. And then if you look at Philippians chapter 2, again, you don't need to turn there now, but the Passion Translation would say it this way. Consider the example that Jesus, the Anointed One, has set before us. Jesus set a pattern in having started with God in heaven and then coming to earth. This is the example. Verse 6, he existed in the form of God 
and yet he gave no thought to seizing equality of, of God as his supreme prize. But the point that we, I want to make very clearly from those two scriptures is that Jesus was with God in heaven and perfection. Would, would you agree? He was with God. He didn't just start on, thank, on Christmas in the year 2000. I mean, the year zero. <laughs> or negative four. four. Negative four. What am I? Four B.C. Wake up, Paul. I need more coffee. He didn't just start then. He was, he was in a state of perfection. He was enjoying being God in heaven. And then Jesus left heaven and left perfection to come to our worst. And so if you, if you can turn there, listen to this. In Luke chapter 2, where we read about the birth of Christ, <clears throat> consider for a second in perhaps contrary to the lovely nativity scenes that we often find in front of churches with the warm lights and the cozy little thing that we call a manger and there's the straw and Jesus, he probably has a faint smile on his face and there are these wonderful looking animals. You just want to hug them and Mary's there. Mary, you know, you notice there's like no blood anywhere, nothing going on every birth I've ever attended. It didn't look like that. There's this nativity scene that we get used to, but this is what the scripture says about the actual birth of Jesus. That while they were there, verse 6 of Luke chapter 2, the time came for the baby, Jesus, to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger. Now, we don't really say manger uh, very often apart from nativity scenes, but do we all know what a manger is? It's a feeding trough. In other words, when Jesus left this state of perfection, being equal to God, being God actually in a place of heaven, he came and left that and came into the earth, and his entry point into the earth was, well, let's continue reading that. That verse, because there was no guest room available for them. There was no welcome. You would think that God visiting the earth and the people he created would receive the most royal of welcomes, and yet there wasn't even room for him in the inn. They had to go to an animal stable. He was born amongst animals in the filth of animals. Anyone ever been in an animal stable, by the way? Maybe you've gone to the Greenfield Village and kind of gone to the animal thing and walked through and, or wherever, whatever farm you've been to. It doesn't smell very good, right? I mean, there's stuff there. We're not going to talk about it here. That is the reality, not the nativity scene. This, he was, he was laid in a manger, which means they had to kind of clear the food that was meant for the animals out, kind of get some kind of impromptu straw or something and lay a baby it was not an antiseptic, sterile environment. It was disgusting, filthy. It was, it was, it was almost a picture of rejection, is what, I'm looking, is what I'm trying to say. He left heaven, and that was his entry point. In Philippians, going back to Philippians chapter 2, Paul says this, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus leaves perfection and comes into the earth to do this. And we know where he wound up in, in that earthly visit that he did. He wound up on a cross before being buried in a grave, of course, ultimately resurrecting. But I, I just want to ask us to all kind of put ourselves for a second in Jesus' shoes. Now, I, I don't mean any disrespect or irreverence to Jesus, we all know. But just put yourself in, in your, if you were Jesus, and you're conferring with God the Father about the plan, because God and Jesus made earth, made humanity, that was the apex of their creation, that was the, that was the deepest thing of their heart, and mankind had messed it up. And so God the Father and Jesus are talking about, what are we going to do to fix this? Yes, we're here in heaven and we're here in perfection, but our heart aches. And for those of you who are parents out there, you know, you, you, it, no matter what mansion you live in, if you know your kids are out there somewhere and they're messing their lives up, you can't fully be totally at peace and content. 
right? You, you have a heart aching for your, for your kids. And the father heart ached. And so he said to Jesus that we need to do something about this. And I want to ask you, if you were in Jesus' shoes, what would that, not Jesus, but if you were in Jesus' shoes, what would that conversation look like? I think for some of us, it would probably look like something like this. The father God saying, you know, Jesus, we have to fix this. We have to do something about this. I need you to go into the earth and I need you to save these people. And maybe you or I would say, you know, Father God, that's not heaven. We're in heaven. That's not heaven. But that's, that's pretty cool still. I mean, being that I'm God, I can be, you know, I'll be born into royalty, right? How many of you would, would want that maybe? I mean, I mean, I'm God like you are, Father. And so I'm going to come to the earth, and surely, I mean, I'm going to be born to royalty. And the father would say something like, well, actually, um, you're, you're going to be born to a woman who gets pregnant out of wedlock. And your dad, who I guess is kind of like an adopted dad, is actually an ordinary common carpenter. Jesus um, would imagine, or you, you in Jesus' shoes might say, well, no problem, you know. I mean, I'm God, I'm, I'm, I will go there and possess all of the riches of the earth, right, God? To which the father would probably say, well, you know, at your birth, you're going to have some people come and they're going to bring you silver and gold. And then you're going to live as a common person with this kind of mediocre salary dad carpenter all the way up until, until the time that your ministry begins. And at that point, you're going to start trusting me every day for your needs. Okay. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll be a professional religious leader, right? You would say, or Jesus would say. And the father would say, you know, uh, well, actually, you're not going to have any credentials, and you're going to have no formal training at all. Okay. All right. I, I got it. I'm God, so I don't really need all that stuff anyway. Um, so, at least, if we do all of this stuff, God, this will be the way to get all those people to submit to my leadership finally so that I can save them, right? I mean, I'm fine with giving up all of the pedigree, the credentials, the riches, the power, all that stuff, but they'll all submit to my leadership and be saved that way, right? And to which the Father would say, well, I mean, there are going to be some who are going to submit to your leadership and, and be saved by putting their faith in you. Most are not, and some are going to ha hate you, and they're actually going to want to kill you. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, that's not good, but I'm God, so I can't die, right? About that. <laughs> and so the, the, the reality is that Jesus left earth to come and give all of that stuff up, to ultimately die a criminal's death on our behalf. We know this, but I'm praying that this morning we take stock of this again and realize that this, that he did this for you and for me. Like that was like with you in mind, not humanity. That was with you in mind. This is what he did. He left perfection. And I would invite you this morning to perceive the great sacrifice that Jesus made to bring you home. So having said that, let's talk about what was the vision that Jesus had for bringing people home. Uh, there's this wonderful passage of scripture. I love it. In Hebrews chapter 12, where the author of Hebrews says this, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, listen to this, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. How many of you know that to truly follow Jesus there is a cross to be picked up. There's some sacrifice to be made. There's some leaps of faith that are not comfortable if you're really following Jesus. Am I alone in this, or can I get an amen? And Jesus is the ultimate example of this, the ultimate one to have made a sacrifice, the ultimate one to have leapt in faith and obedience to God. After all, his requirement of obedience was to go voluntarily die on a cross, a humiliating death, and to be tortured before it, and, and to be abandoned by all of his disciples, on and on. That was, no, none of us will ever go to the extent that he did. But the scripture that I just read says that it was for the joy 
set before him that he endured the cross, despising not the shame. There was a joy set before him. The cross was here, and there's a joy beyond that that he was seeing. And what do you suppose that joy was? What was it that he was seeing that caused him to endure the cross? And let me tell you something. For your walk with Jesus, there's going to be sacrifices, as we just said. There's going to be leaps of faith. And, and, and God is not calling us simply to just make sacrifices and leaps of faith. He will put in our heart a joy that makes us and gives us what we need to voluntarily be willing to make that leap of faith. To be willing to make a sacrifice because we've seen something. What did Jesus see? I would, I would, I would, this is what I believe that Jesus saw. He sacrificed himself so that he could redeem believers whom he would send into his sacrificial mission. In other words, he started this thing. He's the one who left heaven. He left all of his conveniences. He left all of his comforts, all of his status as God and became the lowest of us in order to ultimately die on our behalf so that others could be redeemed to the same relationship with God. But not just that, he could live in those people. Live in them. The Spirit of God inside of them through whom he could live and fulfill, continue the mission that he started. Am I making sense here? There is a mission did not, that did not stop when Jesus ascended into heaven. In one sense, for the church, it began there. He, all he did was he began it, he instituted it, he modeled it, he left, and he sent the church. That was the joy that there is once again a people on the earth who are walking on earth with God in heaven, just like he did. So, we're going to get a little bit, a little different here, but if I could bring up a slide. Some of you guys know I'm also a licensed realtor, right? Part of the joys of church planting is sometimes you need to be what we call bivocational to support ourselves. So, uh, we're going to get into a real estate course now. No. <laughs> When we talk about this joy set before us, there is a parallel to the ministry of Jesus to even something like real estate sales. Now, many of you know who have any familiarity with sales, you know that there's a thing called a sales funnel. You want to be working with people, and ultimately you want to have a goal of, of, of the hoped, expected end of that relationship with people in the realm of your sale. So as a realtor, if you look at the sales funnel, anybody ever used a funnel before? It's wide at the opening, right? So that it, it's, it's forgiving if you spill, but it's going to funnel, it's going to channel that liquid into the direction that you want it to go. Well, in, if you look at the bottom, number five, in real estate, if you're a good realtor, you want satisfied referring clients. Now, what do I mean by that is it's not just getting a deal uh, closed. And maybe can I, can I risk a little bit and say something that I've noticed in our beautiful city of Detroit? Uh, well, you know what? I'm not even going to go there because it's going to get off the subject. But let me just say this. I, I've seen a lot of people who are about the hustle. In other words, we're, 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 we're trying to get the buck. We're trying to get through this week and get our hustle and get our, how can I make money? How can I get this thing from people? How can I, and, and if that is our objective, we're not going to build a very strong business. I know I'm getting a little off the subject, but if a, a strong real estate business, you're looking for satisfaction of clients. Why? Because the bread and butter is that they're going to want to refer your services to people and use you again. That's what you're wanting to do. So how do you do that? You've got to have closed transactions. I don't, I don't know where all these number ones came from, but anyways. Closed deals. So there's no satisfied clients until you've brought some of those clients to a closing table and you have closed the transaction where they've bought a house or sold the house and you've helped them along the process. Once you have closed transactions, how are you going to have closed transactions? You've got to have clients, right? And how, So you've got to have people who have signed a contract and made you their realtor. Well, how are you going to get to that point? These people don't just like come out of nowhere. They don't just pick up a phone and call you. How are you going to do that? You've got to have prospects, people that you're talking to. You're giving them advice. You're walking a journey. You're, they're, they're looking to buy or sell in three to 12 months, and you're kind of positioning yourself to be in a conversation with them so that they will choose you as the realtor when the time comes. 
how are you going to have those people? They don't just fall out of the sky. You've got to be going and meeting people. Now, let me explain something about real estate and going and meeting people. It is awkward. Because I, I, when I started my real estate career in 2017 here in Michigan, and I was doing all the research, and you're YouTubing, and you're Googling, and you're talking to all the realtors who are successful, and how do you meet people? How do you, and, the, and there's certain ways of finding the right people to meet and, and things like that you can do, but all at the end of the day, it, it, it involves picking up a phone and talking to people that don't know you and you don't know them. That's awkward. Or knocking on the door of somebody who doesn't know you and you don't know them. Now, there are ways to make that kind of servant-hearted and friendly and, and less intrusive, but at the end of the day, you're going to see a nine no's for every one yes that you get. Are you tracking? So if I want to have a bunch of satisfied referring clients, my biggest responsibility every day is to be meeting people who don't yet know me and they find out about my services. Now, there is a parallel to what I just described to you in the ministry of Jesus. If you can go to the next slide. Jesus, if you can look at Isaiah chapter 61 on the right-hand side over here. Isaiah 61, those first four verses are the mission statement of Jesus. He quoted this passage of scripture when he started his ministry. Now again, we're talking about what is the vision that Jesus has? What is the joy that was set before him? This is a picture of that joy. He saw sons and daughters, those who had become redeemed, being transformed and sent into that mission. And so you look at this. The first step would be go. Just like in real estate, I've got to go meet people. Well, Jesus says he's got to go. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel. That's going, right? That's being sent. That's a mission. That's where it all begins. And that second step is that there are crowds. In other words, like, just like in real estate, there's prospects People that you're talking to, you're building relationship. Well, Jesus had the same thing. He had prospects, if you will. There were crowds. They hadn't decided to follow him yet. In real estate terms, they hadn't made him his realtor, if you know what I'm saying. They're not, there's no contract. They haven't followed him, but they're interested in him. They're looking. They're, they're intrigued. They're thinking, maybe this is good for me. What do we hear from, from that? The gospel to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening, of the, uh, uh, the opening of the prison to them who are bound to comfort all who mourn. Poor, brokenhearted, captive, imprisoned, mourning. Five descriptions of lost humanity that Jesus was sent to. Five descriptions of lost humanity that you and I have been a part of. Five descriptions of lost humanity that you and I are sent to go reach. So it starts with going. You go where? To the crowds, to people, the brokenhearted, people who are experiencing the negative effects of this sinful world. But the cool thing is, out of those crowds, some are going to become disciples, which is to say they don't just receive some of the message and hear it. They make a decision to follow Jesus. They make a decision that they want to follow him. It says to console those who mourn in Zion. It actually, the original Hebrew actually says who mourn Zion, which is to say they don't just mourn about feeling bad about their life and the sin and what it's done in their lives and that kind of thing. They're, they're going a step beyond that. They're mourning Zion, the city of God, the purposes of God. They're mourning. They've gotten hold of something, just of what God has willed from heaven for the church, and it's beginning to break their heart and make them want to be a part of what God is doing in the earth. They're mourning Zion. Does that make sense? These are disciples. So you got to go. You go to the crowds. Some of the crowds, when hearing this gospel of the kingdom, they're going to place their faith in Jesus. They become disciples. What happens from that? Transformation. In real estate, it's called closing the deal. You, you, there's a transformation in that I'm handing the title deed over and I'm getting a whole bunch of money in, 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 in hopefully in, in response to that. Well, in the God ministry of the gospel, uh, not that I'm getting the money, the, my client's getting the money, and I'm getting some of the money, but <laughs> that's, okay, anyways. Transformation, look at, listen to this. 
to give them beauty for ashes. That's transformation. The oil of joy for mourning. That's transformation. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That they may be called. In other words, their people are start, in their lives are starting to pick up that on the, there's been a transformation in this person's life. They may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And then ultimately, it all culminates with being sent. Listen to this. And they, can you say they? We started up in verse 1, Jesus saying the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. But by the time we get down to verse 4, it says they shall rebuild the old ruins. Well, who are they? Those who have received the gospel and have become disciples and have started to see the transformation that happens in your life when you're truly walking in obedience to Jesus. How many of you know, by the way, if you're truly walking in obedience to Jesus, it's not a patch of roses, a bed of roses, right? That's not what we're saying. But if you walk through whatever it is that you're going through with him, you will, mark my words, be transformed. I cannot tell you how many testimonies that we have, that I have, walking with Jesus through the fire, fiery, the, the shadow of death and walking with Jesus and holding on to him, and I come out on the other side having something of transformation in my life. It's the way this thing works, and it can be through the valley of the shadow of death. It can be walking through happy times. Walking with Jesus will bring transformation. And they, those who have been transformed, shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. What is that saying? That is Jesus now sending those who have followed him to do what he started doing in verse 1. Going. And today, we are looking at inviting others to home. You and I, our walk with Jesus must lead us, yes, to being transformed, but to being his agent. Great word choice, by the way. His agent on the earth. His, his ambassador that he has sent to represent him and his will to people. Can I tell you some things about what it's going to take to do that? And I hope some of us have a desire to do that. Before we get there, I just want to say this. When Jesus ended his ministry, right before he ascends back into heaven, already having been resurrected, he says these words to his disciples. Go. Actually, he says, all authority in heaven and in earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Do you hear, do you hear the simplicity of the, of, the, of the plan? He started it, and now he says go, right before he leaves. How many of us as Christians think that that somehow stopped? As if it was just the apostles who were sent. The church is sent. To the degree that you have received Jesus and have received of him is the same degree that you have that to be given away. Whatever you received of him, you have a mandate and a commission to give away. He says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to walk in or observe everything I've commanded you. Simple instructions, right? Jesus teaches you, and you give that to others. You teach it to others. Jesus teaches me to walk in freedom from some sin addiction that I've had. I walk with him through it. I receive. As I get free from that, I now have that to give away to other people who are struggling in that area. Make sense? Teaching them to observe everything I've, I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you even to the ends of the age. That's what he says. So if that's true, I, I just want to pull, pull out three truths from that passage that I just quoted. First truth, Jesus left heaven so that we could have heaven. Remember where Jesus was at the beginning? Perfection in heaven? And he left that for you, for me. Went to the lowest state. Why did he do that? He left heaven so that we could have heaven. How does Brooke Liggert would say in that uh, song, you didn't want heaven without us, so you brought heaven down. Jesus left heaven so that we could have heaven. Second truth, those who receive heaven. Do you know, understand what I'm saying by receive heaven and have heaven? I'm not talking about going to heaven when you die. That's included. 
How many of you know when you receive Jesus by faith, you become born again, the Spirit of God dwells inside of you, and the Spirit is the linking channel of heaven and earth. The, the Spirit of God is inside of you, and the Spirit of God is in heaven at the same time. Thus, heaven is inside of you. Make sense? Those who have received heaven are now sent to give heaven to others. Teaching others to observe everything I've commanded you. I'm commanding you from a place of heaven, a heavenly perspective, and I'm teaching you into your sin-laden wor world to walk on earth as it is in heaven. And as you walk that out, as you get liberated by my power, my spirit, and my word, you can now teach others and give heaven away. Thirdly, others won't have heaven until we go. And I don't want that to be a thing of pressure, of condemnation. I'm speaking to the heaven that is inside of you. With that, with that DNA that you've received when you receive the Spirit of God, that DNA includes a wiring to reproduce and multiply. The faith that is in you is wired. It has a DNA structure to want to multiply itself, just like in the natural realm. I'm about to get real, okay? In our natural bodies, there's a DNA that has an instinctive drive to reproduce itself. Have you noticed that? <laughs> I've got two reproduced right here because of that drive. In your reborn spirit, there is a DNA inside of you that wants to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, see other people get born again. For them to, to see Jesus and know him the way you do. I'm speaking to the passion inside of you that is there by the Spirit of God. Not because you're so holy and good. There is passion in you from heaven because heaven is passionate. Heaven is so passionate that it sent Jesus to down the cross for us. That passion. To be motivated by that passion. Jesus left the highest and embraced the lowest for our salvation. He calls us to leave our convenience and comforts so that others can be continued to be reached. This is what I'm wanting to say, guys. Because now I want to clo close this out with what is it going to take for us to actually invite others home? we got to know it does not happen in the scope of our convenience and our comfort. We've got to behold Jesus as our example. He is our example. And what did it say of him as our example? That he was with God in heaven and he left that place to save us. And if we have been sent by that same Jesus, that means leaving our comforts. And our conveniences. So much of the church is saying, yes, I believe, I want to see people get saved. Yes, God, save the world and let the gospel be heard. Well, what are you doing about it? I'm, I'm not wanting to put a heavy on it, but, but there's too much talk. And, and at the end of the day, Jesus left. And I, I've seen in real estate... If I could just be straight up with you, like I can remember days starting the career, moving to Michigan from another country. No one knew me. I had to meet everybody brand new, knocking on doors and knocking on 10, 15, 20 doors. And I can remember one dude on Atkinson Street over by Boston Edison. He literally say, said to me, get off my porch. Go on, get. <laughs> I mean, it w I, I became, I, 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 I had the, the, the pride of a dog in that moment, right? I mean, he literally was speaking to me like a dog. Go on, get. I don't even know if they say that up here. That was like, he had to have been from the South. No one says that except in the South. Go on, get. And, and I can remember, how do you build the, the how do you build the tenacity, the, the audacity to go knock on another door after having that happen to you. You know what it was? I knew in my knower, if I keep going, it's a numbers game. If I just keep going, I'm going to find that person who makes a good rapport connection with me, and I'm going to be able to help them. I've got to weed through all this rejection in order to find people that I can help. 
and I want to serve my family. I want to do what's right by them. I want to do whatever it takes to supply for my family. And this is what I do. Well, if I can do that to supply for my family, what about eternal life? How much more worth it is it? So what's it going to take to do this, my friends? You guys remember Tony Blair? I know you do. You remember everything. <laughs> Tony Blair. Tony Blair was the prime minister of, great, of uh, England uh, back uh, kind of late Clinton, early Bush administrations. And uh, Tony Blair, there was a, you, some of you would remember, 1998, 1999, there was, a, there was a crisis in Kosovo. Remember Yugoslavia? And the Serbs and the ethnic Albanians were fighting each other. And it was a humanitarian crisis. It was awful. It was awful o along ethnic lines, just, just killing. And it was like genocide. And uh, Tony Blair was trying to get the U.S. to get involved to help stop this thing. Ultimately, it was stopped by NATO. And Tony Blair was in Chicago, and he was giving a speech to try to rally U.S. support because the U.S. at that time had just kind of said, we're not going to be involved. And Tony Blair said these words. He, he, he lays out this whole speech about what's wrong in Kosovo, what's happening, the crisis. And he says, but we must do more than make our case. We must also succeed. I love those words. It's not just about making our case. We can make our case in the church that there are people who are, who are dying, they're living and they're dying, and they're going to not see heaven because they don't know Jesus. We can make our case, and we oftentimes do in church, but like Tony Blair said, we don't just need to make a case. We must succeed. And I want to ask us, can we, can we take on that attitude? We don't just need to kind of know the theology about how we have been sent into the world. We've got to succeed. Let me ask you, what is success? Success is not that every person is going to receive Jesus. Why do I know that? Because when Jesus was here, not every person received Jesus. Most didn't. And if they didn't hear him, they're definitely not going to hear us. But this is what success is. Some are. And they're not going to receive Jesus until we do something about that. Until we go. If I can go for real estate, I can go for eternal life. I can go for the salvation of mankind. I can go for the glory of God because people are going to not just receive Jesus, they're going to be transformed by that Jesus as they truly follow him. I can play a part in somebody finding eternal life and being transformed and that they then get sent by that same Jesus to represent him in the earth. And I could have played a part in that by, by obeying him. So quickly, five things that I think are important if we are going to be a part of this. Number one, embrace discomfort. Embrace discomfort. I've already said it, but let me tell you something. I, that's all I did for five years was embrace discomfort in real estate. And I feel like the Lord at the beginning of uh, this year released me from focusing on the real estate part and is, is allowing me to focus more on the ministry part, although I'm still doing real estate, but I'm just doing word of mouth and referrals. But I'm inviting you, let's all band together to embrace discomfort in, the, in, in, in doing what it takes to get the gospel out there. Can I say, as an asterisk, a little side note, I'm not talking about knocking on doors. And in fact, Jackie and we, on our street yesterday, we were hiding under the window because there were those people coming to our doors wanting to, I'm not going to mention what group it was, but we didn't want to have that conversation. So if, in case you're wondering, I'm not talking about doing that. I'm talking about loving people and having a relationship with people who don't know Jesus. And, and being intentional in that relationship to try to not cram the Bible down their throat, but love them to the point where there's an open door for you to share what you've got. Embrace discomfort. I want to honor again my, my sons. Not because they're my sons, because I've watched them. At, if there's anyone in, in this room who, by virtue of their age, being teenagers, could feel uncomfortable sharing the gospel, it would be the, it would be the teenagers in the room. Am I right? I mean, you face so much rejection and potential social uh, loss if you're putting your neck out there. And they, I've seen them do it over and over, week after week inviting people who didn't grow up in church, aren't in church, inviting them to come to the house and be a part of 
their thing that they're doing. And, and over time, we're seeing people who have never even been in church are now like coming in here every so often, talking about Jesus. The, the last time they had a, a youth thing in our house, one of the kids started talking about how he knows God must really exist, and it began to overcome him so much he started crying and had to leave the room. The, the, this thing working in people's lives, how does it happen? They put their neck on the line and keep on inviting people. Are they going to see acceptance every time? No. Just like in real estate. You get nine no's for every one yes, typically. You follow what I'm saying? So th- number one, embrace discomfort. Number two, nail your colors to the mast. Nail your colors to the mast. Some of you don't even know what on earth I'm talking about. And that's fine, because it's kind of more of a British thing to say. Nail your colors to the mast. Here's what that means. Back in the days of sea navigation, early sea navigation, when ships would come and kind of encounter each other, they had to put their flag up to declare what country they were coming from. That flag would tell the other ship, are they friendly or not friendly? So it could be a British flag that would go up, Spanish, Portuguese, Dutch. One of those flags would tell the other ship, are we at good terms or are we not? Once you put that flag up, there's no turning back. If that's an enemy ship, they know who you are. Your identity has been exposed. And it, you do a risk every time you raise that flag because you don't know if that other ship is going to be friendly with you. Am I making sense? They, they would call that nailing your colors to the mast. The, the, the colors of your flag being nailed to the mast, making it clear who you are. If we're going to reach people, we have to nail our colors to the mast. Can I read you a couple scriptures of what Jesus said with regards to this? Luke chapter 9, verse 26. Please hear this. For whoever is ashamed of me, Jesus says, and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. The church must be a people who have crossed that line and nailed their colors to the mast and made it known who it is, whose we are. Again, I'm not talking about cramming the Bible down people's throats, but people need to know something of who it is that we serve. Jesus says that. Paul, the apostle, says this in Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Paul did get persecuted when he preached it. And he kept going to a different city and he'd preach it again, get persecuted all over again. He went town to town to town knowing I'm about to get beat up, but I'm going to do it again. Why? Because that thing I'm speaking is the power of God to salvation. In other words, yes, I'm going to face some stuff, me, and a whole bunch of people aren't even going to receive what I have to say, but some are. And for their sakes, I do what I do, regardless the cost. Are they worth it? If Jesus says so, I think his church should too. Number three. Well, let me ask you a question before I say number three. Do our coworkers, our friends, the people that spend time with us, do they know who you believe? I'm not saying have you preached the gospel to them, but do they at least know? Have your colors been nailed to the mast? Number three, anticipate great reward. While there is discomfort, while we have to nail our colors to the mast and put our neck on the line and possibly face rejection, it's also true that there is great, great reward involved in this. The early Christians of the first century church, they spread the gospel with resulting salvations. Every time I would knock on that door, I would know. Maybe 10% are going to one day sit at a closing table with a big smile, wanting to tell their friends and their family about my services. We may not get a positive result every time we invite somebody to church, every time we say something about the gospel to somebody. It may not be that positive thing, but there is a great reward. Listen to what the early church did. Acts chapter 11, verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered... After the persecution that arose over Stephen, can I hit pause there? How many of you, how many of us have been persecuted so severely that we've had to leave and move to a different city? Anybody? 
put your hand up? Not one. Persecuted for the gospel. Right? American church, we sadly really kind of don't know this. And I think that we don't even need to face persecution to get back to the heartbeat of what they walked in, what that early church walked in. But these people, I just want you to put your, get your mind around the scenario. They were persecuted and they had to leave their home, leave the place that they grew up, leave the place where all their friends and their family were. What did they do? Most of us would be like, okay, I've got to find a job. I've got to, and we need those things. But they weren't just thinking survival. They were thinking spread the gospel. Listen to this. They were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Do you know that these weren't apostles? These weren't the fivefold ministry gifts. These were those who were scattered. It was just believers. Are you tracking? They were preaching. And I firmly believe that does not mean they got a soapbox and, and, and came into town and started preaching the gospel. I think they were meeting people and talking about Jesus. Can you do that? Can I do that? Verse 20, but some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that means the Greeks, non-Jews, preaching the Lord Jesus and the hand of the Lord was with them. Can I say that the hand of the Lord is with you? And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. As we're doing what we do to reach people, don't forget. You may face persecution, yes. You may just not really be received, sure. But there will be some who will believe and turn to the Lord. And for those sakes, for their sakes, we can go. Number four, can I suggest that at the end of this year, as we're closing up the year, some of you are going to be thinking about 2024 New Year's resolutions and plans for how we can make 2024 better than 2023. Some of us are going to be doing that. Can I say, from the depths of my soul, make your plans built on his mission. That is, at the end of the day, you are not going to face God and say, God, and he's not going to ask you, did you save up enough money to be able to go on that vacation that you always want to do or have that car or have that stuff? He's going to say, what did you do with the gospel, with, with, with the heaven that I deposited into you? Did you walk with me and did you spread it? Did you live in what I came and was born in the earth and what I ultimately died for? That's what we're here for. Have your vacations or whatever, fine, but let that be the tail being wagged by the dog of the mission. That is the heart of God. And what are th some things that we can do in 2024? Be strengthened, be intentional, and be trained. Strengthened, can I ask that we commit, not out of some religious duty, but commit to the daily habit of being with Jesus in his word and in prayer. That we commit to receiving with our fellow brothers and sisters uh, on Sundays. Not, not out of religious duty, but hungering to be strengthened by the word of God. And commit uh, to weekly fellowship. Community group, those things. Com we need these things to be strengthened. Without those things, I'm telling you, you're not going to fully walk in mission. I'm telling you. Be strengthened. Number two, be intentional. Can I, I want to ask all of us, if we're going to see people receive Jesus, we, it's got to start with us praying for those people. Pray for the people who aren't yet following Jesus in your life, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors. Pray for them. You start praying. Jesus says this, the harvest is great, the, mo the labors are few. Pray you, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth labors into his harvest. You start praying for the harvest, and you start getting a heart for the harvest, and the next thing you know, you're being sent into the harvest. Be intentional. Number three, be trained. And just so you know, Minda and I are excited about plans that we're not going to announce now, but we will be announcing very soon of some discipleship and training plans to help believers who want to do what we're talking about this morning, who want to do it, to be trained. Some, we're going to have some men's stuff and some women's stuff, and then we'll have some together men and women's stuff, and ultimately that's going to lead to us being sent whoever wants to be, into this harvest together as a team. 
So be trained. Details to be announced, 2024. And then lastly, and this is where we'll end uh, today, this week, because it's got to be something we can activate tomorrow, this afternoon, this week, this week, can I tell you, people will come to a Christmas Eve service who ordinarily don't go to church. This is our opportunity. Make those invitations. Invite people. Why? So that we have these chairs filled. Well, that's cool. But so that people hear about this Jesus. How are they going to hear? How are they going to believe unless they hear? And how are they going to hear, Paul says, unless there is a preacher? And how is there going to be a preacher unless one is sent? So we, we've got to bring them into the atmosphere where they're going to hear the gospel and hear about Jesus. And let's start praying this week, guys, that some receive Jesus. So, so but y'all are thinking, okay, you're done now. Well, I, I just need to fill in a couple blanks on how I think that we should make these invitations. Personal invitations. Personal you see, there's direct, in, there's indirect invitations and there's personal invitations. Uh, indirect invitations would be things like posting on social media or sending a mass email to everybody or a mass text to everybody. That's indirect. You're not saying, Bob, can you? You're saying, hey, guys. And when it's not personal, people tend to not respond nearly as much. But if you go and say, Raynell, I've had, I'd love for you to join my family. The, well, we understand Raynell's sitting here. We're preaching to the choir. But whoever, let's say Jerry, <laughs> I'd love for you to join my family at, at our church this, that, that's, that's, uh, this Christmas Eve. That's much more powerful. Indirect invitations are still useful as a complement to personal direct invitations. Remember, nail, nailing your colors to the mast, right? What do I mean by personal? I mean face-to-face, -face, a text to an individual, a direct message, maybe even a handwritten note or letter, whatever it is. Make sure that it's, uh, it's personal to them. Jesus, Jesus said this. He, when, when he was calling people to discipleship, he said, come, follow me. Now, I know it's easier to say, hey, guys, follow me. But he would, he would go to Matthew, and there's, there's an awkward, right? When you say, come, come to my church, there's an awkward. Why? Because that person could say, no. And then you're like, and that's what you have to do in order to reach people. You have to embrace the discomfort. If we don't do it, the, it's like the wheel gets jammed. We, we stop the, the moving of the gospel moving forward. We have to embrace the discomfort. But I want to encourage you again, there are going to be people who do respond. And it makes it all worth it. Can we pray?